gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, The New 52 Adventures of Superman, Superman Forever Radio, I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Kara's World Podcast. The Superman Vidcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Danny Sapp, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Portions of the day's programming are reproduced by means of electrical transcriptions or tape recordings. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El came to Earth, whose environment gave him fantastic powers. In Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil the world over as Superman. And welcome to episode 78 of Superman in the Bronze Age, the longest-running and only podcast providing exclusive coverage of Superman's Bronze Age adventures. As always, this episode is sponsored by InStock Trades, a mainstay of the collected edition market. InStock Trades has over 13,000 individual trade paperback, graphic novel, and hardcover titles in stock and ready to ship, all at greatly discounted prices. An example of their discounts is the DC Comics Classics Library Legion of Superheroes The Life and Death of Pharaoh Lad which actually kind of relates to the story that's going to be covered in our Superboy section Uh, this book collects Adventure Comics 346, 347, 352, 353, and 357 the Legion battles both the Fatal Five and the Sun Eater and only the Ultimate Sacrifice can save Pharaoh Lad's friends this hardcover this hardcover book uh, retails for four, uh, $39.99, but you can get it at in-stock trades for only $21.99, which is a savings of 45%. Most orders ship within 48 hours, and orders over $50 ship for free. And you can find them on the web at www.instocktrades.com. Okay, now, remember when we used to cover comic books on the show? Can you believe it's been two months since I had to do a synopsis for a comic book? Not counting the live podcast in Metropolis? Well, for this show anyway. My other show, I've been doing comics. But anyway, well, to bring us back in with a bang, and since this episode comes out on July 3rd, I thought it'd be fun to take a look at a four-part story that celebrated America's bicentennial. But first, we've got feedback. 
Alright, starting off we're going to look at uh, the comments that were left on the website. Uh, let's see, starting with about the 23rd it looks like. Yes. Uh, let's see, first up is Felicity Ryan Mercer. No, just Ryan Mercer, I guess. Hello there, I discovered your site by means of Google while searching for a related topic, and your website came up. It looks good. I have bookmarked it to favorites, added it, and added it to my bookmarks. Okay, thanks, uh, Ryan. Welcome to the show. Um, you can also find us on Facebook if you want to get more information about the show, too. Uh, let's see, moving right along. Next up, we have a short little message from Russell Bragg. Uh, he and he comments. Oh, it doesn't say which one this is with, but it looks like this is the. Oh, this is where I was talking about the eighties. Um, another spectacular show. How do I find time to comment on your podcast as often as I have been? Well, I listen to all of my podcasts at work. I get yours, iTunes downloaded as soon as I'm notified that a new one is ready. I pretty much try to comment on the episode one or two days after listening. I don't take notes on everything, just notes on something I might want to ask you about or answer something you might have had a question about. What I, But what I want to do... Or, bleh, let me try that again. But I want to do it as soon as, possibly, as, soon as I possibly can. Now onto my notes from episode 75. You mentioned the Phantom Zone miniseries. Did you know about it coming out in trade sometime in June? I already have mine pre-ordered. That's, I'm sorry, that's what Russell said. It was nice to see that West Virginia was well represented in your podcast with one of your other emailers. You didn't happen to catch a city, did you? Just curious. Um, if it, no, sorry. It just said West Virginia. Um, I own, continuing on with the message, I own the Superman The Secret Years series. I think I would have enjoyed it as a 12-parter. I think I always get that series confused with Superman The In-Between Years, the backup from the Superman comics. It was very similar. It actually... Uh, this is me talking now. Uh, it actually really was. It was going... Basically, this was just going to be an expanded version of The In-Between Years. In fact, it was the same writer. Uh, but they were trying to do something special to... And it got messed up because of the crisis and stuff. Um... Continuing on, I remember the Superpowers figures well. I currently have a Superman, a Lex Luthor, and the Supermobile. I think I mentioned in my last email how much I love the Tabloid Edition comics. In my collection, I have five of the all-new Collector's Edition, three Superman-related. Number 54, Superman vs. Wonder Woman. Number 56, Superman vs. Muhammad Ali. And number 62, Superman the Movie. I have three DC Special Series, two Superman-related, Number 25, super, which is about Superman 2, and number 26, Superman and His Incredible Fortress of Solitude, and a and nine limited edition, collector or limited collector's edition. Two of those are Superman related. Number 47, Superman salutes the bicentennial, and number 48, Superman vs. the Flash. Isn't eBay wonderful? Phew. Now onto the episode. Now onto the. I thought we were talking about the. Okay. Uh, moving on to the episode part. I don't really know what Superman in the 80s means to me. I remember Superman 2, the only one I got to see in the theater. I can still remember thinking to myself while I was watching, how did the Green Crystal give Superman his powers back? It was very confusing to me, not knowing about any of the behind-the-scenes troubles. Of course, now with the Donner version available, I know that it wasn't the Crystal, but Jor-El, but it was awesome seeing J Superman on the big screen. 
I subscribed to Superman Comics in 1983 in time to get Superman 400 at a lower than newsstand price. And of course, I have the Superman in the 80s trade. I don't have all those trades, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, or... I'm sorry, he says I have all of those trades, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. I had no idea that this version of Superman was slowly coming to an end. I don't really think I've found out for years. High school, girlfriend, jobs, and life took me away from comic books probably up until sometime after 2000. I knew about Superman's death and marriage to Lois, but I didn't realize that it was a different Superman. Kind of sad, huh? Eh, it's not that bad, but look the same, basically. So, uh, Well, I better close for now. Your future episodes sound exciting. Do you know if you're going to talk about both Superman 2, both Superman 2 versions? I really enjoyed this two-parter. There was a lot of info, and you did a great job in co- conveying it to us. On to episode 100, but I'll settle for episode 77. P.S. You're right. I suppose it it, it is supposed to be P.P.S., not P.S.S. Sorry. <laughs> uh, you're quite alright, uh, Russell. Um... Well, going through the episode, or going through the whole message, well, we talked about the uh, tabloid stuff. The only one out of all the stuff he mentioned, the only one I have a physical copy of, is the one about Superman the movie. So, that's sad. Um, As far as Superman 2, well, you probably know by now, uh, we only covered Superman the Donner Cut, but I tried to mention a lot of... um, the differences between his version and the regular theatrical release while I was doing the commentary, so hopefully that helped. In fact, I'm pretty sure you probably wrote in about it, so I'll hold off for a little bit. Um, Let's see, next up, since I'm going to try to do these in somewhat of a chronological order, the next up is I have an email from Steve Rogers. Title of the email is, Dude, really? Kind of forgot a major toy line in the 70s. Yes, I did. Okay. Hey, Chuckster. I presume Russell has already sent you a missive, and if Scott H. Gardner heard it, and he will now since you said his name, well, that's what Scott does, It prob- he probably sent you some words as well. But since you went over the superpowers line in the 1980s episode, you are remiss in neglecting Mako's World's Greatest Superheroes action figure line of the 70s, running from 1972 to 1980. Superman, of course, is in the first wave, and a later wave included Mr. Mixius Pitalik, the only Superman villain or... Uh, villain? the only Superman villain-slash-supporting character to make the main line. There, of course, was a Hall of Justice playset, though no, lo- though no Legion of Doom floating one, as well as a carrying case sporting Superman on the front. Though the art isn't Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, just yet on the, DC- on the licensed stuff for DC. Hmm. I wonder who it was. I'm gonna guess it would be either Kurt Swan or Neil Adams, but I don't know. According to the Mego reference, reference site at megomuseum.com, there is a UK-only Superman in the Fist Fighter line which had a mechanism in the back where you control the figure's arms. Also, Superman can be found in the smaller-sized bend-and-flex malleable figures, which also has a Mr. Mixius Pitalik figure, comic action, which also includes a, a Fortress of Solitude playset, and Superman is in the board game for the comic action line, Diecast Heroes, a la- Elastic Heroes, a little, which is a little bit bigger than the Bend and Flex ones and with a solid head. Pocket Heroes, which look like an answer to Kenner's revolutionary Star Wars line. A bank line called Super Savers. And a Super Softies plush doll. There's also a 12-inch line released as part of the promotion behind Superman the movie. And the Superman head on the 12-inch figure is modeled after Christopher Reeve. There 
Also, there is a rare 12-inch figure based on the comic version of Superman that was only available in European markets. Also in the line is Lex Luthor, though modeled after a Super Friends look as opposed to Gene Hackman. Jor-El, though looking like a combination between him in the books and Marlon Brando. And General Zod, who also takes cues from both his comic book appearance and Terrence Stamp. And finally, in a special 1974 set sold exclusively at Montgomery Wards. Ah, uh, Montgomery Wards. Uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, there's a Clark Kent figure. Anyway, just thought that... Uh, anyway, just thought that needed to be shared since you went over the superpowers line for the 80s. Of course, like you, that's when I came into collecting superhero toys, as well as Marvel's Secret Wars. But the line is probably just as important when talking about superhero toys. Signed, Steve. Steve, I want to thank you for that. Um, I'm going to be completely honest here. When I put together the 80s episode, um, well, I didn't have a full decade's worth of stuff to go over, even though I also included some stuff I left out of the 70s episode. Uh, I I still had more time I wanted to fill. So I was like, well, what else can I talk about? So that's when I decided to talk about the toys. I actually hadn't even thought about mentioning the superpowers line when I was putting these episodes together. Um, and by the time I was finishing up putting to putting the 80s episode together so that I could get stuff recorded, or so I could get that one recorded, I had already recorded Superman in the, the 70s version, and so, of course, I didn't even think to talk about the Mago line. But I want to thank you for writing in and for looking into this stuff. Um, I did not know any of this, so it's very helpful. And um, I'm sure that a lot of our... Well, a lot of the listeners... I say that like i got a ton of people listening to the show. Um, but I'm sure everyone thanks you, and the information is invaluable. So thank you very much. Actually, I have seen a... a I think I've seen an ad in the comics for the Christopher Reeve Superman movie doll. It was either that or in that the History of Superman book or whatever it is that um has pictures of it. Something like that. I'm pretty sure I've seen it. It looks a little weird. But anyway, uh let's see. All right, let's move back to the messages. So we can keep things in order. Let's see. Next up, we have a message from June 11th. Uh, left on the post for the Superman movie commentary. Let's see what it says. Oh, no, it's not a commentary. It's just me pointing out, pointing things out to it. Okay, anyway, um... On the 29th, Robert left a post of the Superman in the 80s episode. Well, I'm listening to the show and loving it. One of my most anticipated podcasts per release. Definitely looking toward your Superman commentaries. I know you are going to make rewatching all the films for the second time in six months. Totally worth it. You have a lot more confidence in me than I do, Robert. Thank you very much. Um, I hope that you were able to enjoy watching them. I hope I didn't bore them, make them boring. But thank you for that. That was That's very kind of you to say. Uh, another comment um, from when I posted the first half of the live episode, um, which was episode 74 of Superman Forever Radio. Uh, Mike Poteet writes that the Chris Sprouse Legion sketch is fantastic. Way 
envious. That was actually a print, and uh, Dave got him to sign it. it um, we couldn't afford the, what he was charging for sketches, but the prints were like 10 bucks, 20 bucks, depending on who was on it and how many characters. So it wasn't that wasn't too bad. So Dave went and got that instead. Besides, he liked that version of the Legion, and it just so happened that Chris was the one that drew it. But uh, yeah, it was it is really cool. I've got a Tom Strong one, but I didn't post the picture of it because did I post a picture? Oh, I didn't post a picture of it. Darn it! Well, it's not really Superman related, I guess. So, eh, maybe I'll post a picture later. Alright, next up, we have an email Email from a, I guess a new listener named Dave Doty. And he, uh, the title of his email is Man or Superman. Hello, my name is Dave Doty. I thought you would be pleased to know that your three-part Man or Superman show convinced me to rework my upcoming Superman marathon. For background, I was born in 1971. I know for certain I was reading superhero comics by age 6 or 7 in 1978, maybe 77. I was recently wanting to reread the Superman books of my childhood, but I discovered that starting at the beginning of the Bronze Age led me to a bunch of books that didn't really feel much like I remembered. I was originally going to start with the debut of the Dollar Books, since Superman Family and World's Finest were my favorite Superman books from those days. I just listened to your Man or Superman podcast a few days ago. They, and particularly your discussion at the end of how important the story was to the Superman legacy, convinced me to move my date back a year and begin with this story. It seems like a good point from which to see the franchise develop into what I remember, without having to sit through literally years of books waiting to get to the real show. Thanks for putting out such a great show. At first I was disappointed that you didn't uh, stay chronological, but I have to admit that the somewhat aimless feel of the books post-Weisinger got bogged, and I jumped ahead to your new format. Well, not really so well. Not really so new now, I guess. And I have to admit I'm liking them more. It shows that you are as well. Keep up the good work, Dave. Well, thank you, Dave. Uh, yeah, I've kind, I, I, I responded to Dave, but I'll go ahead and do it here on the show, too. Um... I kind of felt the same... I was kind of feeling the same way. Um, it was... I know the era that I like... That I wanted to get to. And I tried really hard to do... To go through... Starting from the beginning of the Bronze Age... And just moving up chronologically. Because I thought that would be the best way to do it. And because I was also inspired by... From Crisis to Crisis Superman podcast. But... After a, over a year doing that it was just getting to the point where it was just like when are we getting to the good stuff and that was right at a point where Dave was having a lot of shows he was doing and I was getting to the point where I was starting to feel just like heaped on because we were doing two two issues an episode uh, every time and you know we had to try to figure out a good time for the two of us to be able to come together every episode to record and it just got a little pr too much pressure i guess you could say and not to mention the fact that the comics just weren't doing it for it well for me anyway so i almost quit i almost ended the show and i figured if i was going to end the show i wanted to go out and do the one story that i really really wanted to do which is why we did man and superman and that really got me wanting to do it some more and come up with the whole switch things around and jump around thing. 
Plus, right about then, uh, Dave was able to help me get the site set up, and he decided he wanted to do the Superboy segment in the back, so technically it's still a solo show, but we're teaming up for it. It's kind of strange, but I figured, you know, bouncing around and doing different things would, would kind of make it more fun. And, of course, um, I spent a while doing the theme months, and then this year I'm celebrating the 75th anniversary. And then next year, starting in January, I've got a whole... I've got plans for what I'm doing for my part of the show. Dave's got some big plans for what he's going to do on his part of the show. That's all I'm going to say. More on that when we get to January. But I know what I'm doing, and I'm really excited about it. Um almost to the point where I'm like I wish this year would finish already <laughs> but not really that much it's just uh it's it's a it's a chunk of super of bronze age superman that I haven't had a chance to read before but I've really been excited to check out so I'm finally going to get to but I've got plenty of cool stuff coming up for the rest of the year and I keep reminding myself by looking at what my schedule is for the rest of the year on the show and it's like I I can't do that I got to cover phantom zone so Anyway, long story short, thanks, Dave. Uh, next up, we have an email from Mike Poteet. Uh, feedback on episode 75, answering Russell's email challenge. So thank you, Russell. Mike says, hi, Charlie. Russell's email challenge was a great idea, and I'm happy to rise to the occasion. I own Miracle Monday, but still haven't read it. I know, I know. It's okay. Uh, I'll let it go this time. And I will listen to your and J. David's take on it as soon as I do. And I can't wait to hear your take on the Phantom Zone miniseries. That is some Bronze Age Superman that I'm, I'm actually pretty familiar with. As I recall, it gets more Twilight Zone than Phantom Zone about three-fourths of the way through, but I'll reread and consider it when your commentaries go live. Have you weighed in on Man of Steel yet? Forgive me if I missed your opinions on it somewhere, and I don't feel... And don't feel you have to rehash them just for me. I gave it a thumbs up on opening night, but this week I have grown to have some more conflicted feelings about it. But that's a discussion for elsewhere and elsewhere. Keep up the good work. Mike Poteet, who's Biblio Mike on Twitter, at ha in Havertown, Pennsylvania. P.S. Thanks for your recommendation of the Garcia Lopez collection. I have a copy on order. But can you explain to this relatively new, serious Superman fan the praise be his name I keep seeing and hearing on the Superman Podcast Network after Garcia Lopez's name? He must just be that good, huh? Well, actually, yeah. Uh, I'm glad to know about the Bronze Age contents of the Fortress of Solitude trade paperback as I initially let that one pass by. Oh, cool. Well, let me tell you... Um, starting from the end and working backwards... Um the the reason the, the I I'm not a hundred percent sure where the praise be his name started. The first time I heard it was um Shag and Rob Kelly on the Fire and Water podcast and which is a podcast about Aquaman and Firestorm because, you know, they Well they don't team up that m ever really, so yeah. Anyway, uh it's a they both have uh, Robert has a, a Rob has a Aquaman blog the Aquaman Shrine and Shag has a Firestorm blog, a Firestorm fan blog and so they got together and they've been covering the new 52 titles of those of their characters and then in fact 
now that uh, Firestorm's been canceled, they're actually covering some of the classic Firestorm stuff now. Uh, but I started hearing that on their show, and as it turns out, it's a pretty popular show, and a lot of the other guys on the podcast network are either fans of the show or friends with both Shag or with Shag and or Rob or both. And um I don't know Rob or Shag all that well. I I'm friends with them on Facebook. We've talked a few times. Um I've I'm, in fact today I'm going to be playing a promo for something else Rob does and I'm going to be podcasting with Shag hopefully in the near future but I haven't really talked to either one of them too much so I don't know them very well but I am a big fan of the show so that's part of why I started using it Dave is a friend of the is a fan of the show plus he talks to both of them rather a lot I guess so you know, he's picked up on it. Mike Bailey picked up on it, and of course, he's been friends with Shag for a long time. Uh, Shag is one of his uh, semi-regular co-hosts on his Fuse from the Long Box show. Uh, so, and then of course, that just—I think between the three of us, well, don't count me. I only have this show, but then with with Dave having this show, Superman Forever Radio, and uh, used to he used to be one of the co-hosts of, of New Fifty Two Adventures of Superman. Plus, Mike Bailey having his myriad of shows, it just started getting around and pat going around, and it's just stuck. And now every, just about everybody's saying it. Well, all the cool podcasters. You won't hear Kevin Smith saying it. Not that he's... Eh, anyway. But yeah, that's basically... As far as I know, that's where it came from. There's no comic ba that says, drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. I've only picked up on it because of that podcast. Beyond that, you might want to check with like Shag or Rob and see where they came up with it. Um, Miracle Monday, I was on episode 72 or 73 of Superman Forever Radio with J. David Weeder, uh, who, you know, he's on this show too. But um, we talked about Miracle Monday on his show. That was a lot of fun. Um, I would recommend, if you haven't read it yet, I would recommend holding off until you've read it to listen to that because we spoiled the crap out of it. And I'm actually uh, getting kind of anxious for the Phantom Zone miniseries as well as I've never read it before but I've heard a lot of good stuff about it so I'm looking forward to checking that out. As for Man of Steel I'm going to assume you mean the movie because it, you know John Byrne's Man of Steel miniseries is after my is after the Bronze Age. Uh, I liked the movie. I've seen it twice now. I it's not a hundred percent. I mean, I ha it's not that I have no problems with it, but I see the reasoning behind a lot of the criticisms. So, and I don't want to go into spoiler material because there might be some people that haven't seen it yet. Uh, but um, the destruction stuff. I've seen reasons against it and reasons for it. I kind of pref I kind of believe some of the or agree more with some of the well, I agree with both sides of that argument. I just I kind of understand why all that happened and the big thing at the end um 
considering the position he was in and the situation. And I, when I saw it the second time, I watched Superman's face during that whole scene. And he did not want to do what he ended up having to do. Um, you could tell. And he's brand new and he doesn't know. I mean, he's never fought anyone with that kind of power. And he was desperate, I think. And this is a Superman that hasn't done anything until the events of this movie, as far as being super, really. So, you know, an inexperienced Superman, I could see that happening. I just, I kind of wish they had more time to, for him to deal with it at the end of the movie. But, you know, you, by that point, you got like five minutes left. So hopefully they'll mention it some the next movie. But uh, all in all, I really enjoyed the movie. I've seen it twice. I would go see it again if I, one, had the money, and two, had another opportunity. But um, I probably won't see it again until I get the uh, the Blu-ray. But So thank you for asking for that. Uh, that's it for the emails. I got two more comments. Nope, I got one more. I was just kidding. <laughs> uh, and this is another one by Russell Bragg, who is taking a, who is also going with his own challenge, apparently. And he wrote this one in response to my Superman 3 commentary in new episode 77. As Peppermint Patty would say, Hiya, Chuck. Hi, Russell. Hope all is well with you. I'm, I'm doing great, thanks. Great episode as usual. It's harder for me to follow along with your movie commentaries because I'm usually at work and we aren't allowed to watch videos. So I pretty much have to follow the movie in my head, and it's been a long time since I've seen Superman 3. I think I told you before that I'd only seen Superman 2 in the theaters. The, uh, the more I thought about it, I think I saw Superman 3 in the theaters too. I'm glad you mentioned how Superman 3 might have been with Supergirl and Brainiac. It's the same as with Superman 2. What might have been? I think that would have been awesome to see. If I remember right, Richard Pryor lobbied to be in the film and he was a hot commodity around the time in movies and concerts. Actually, Russell, I believe... Well, okay. I was a toddler at this point, so I'm not 100% sure. But from what I've read when I was doing the research, Richard Pryor mentioned that he was a fan and liked the movies when he was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and the Saul Kinds saw it or heard about it, and were like, this guy's really popular, let's get him in the movie. And they were gonna... It was partially his movie too it was like Superman and Richard Pryor the movie and he stuck with the script rather than going off on his own thing because he was such a fan of Superman so anyway uh, before I sign off I found some trivia for you you probably know it all anyway but I thought the listener might not so here it goes take care wow before you sign he found a lot of trivia uh, okay, some of this I may have mentioned in the commentary, but I'm going to go ahead and read it all anyway, because Russell went to all this trouble to type it, or at least copy and paste it. Number one, after Margot Kidder expressed her disgust about the firing of Richard Donner to the producers, her role was cut to 12 lines, and less than 5 minutes of screen time. The original title of the movie was Superman vs. Superman. The producers of Kramer vs. Kramer threatened a lawsuit, refusing to believe the Saul Kind's explanation that it was intended as a play on various Superman vs. comic stories. Instead, or eventually, Pierre Spangler suggested that Superman 3 would be a more sensible title anyway, and the issue was dropped. Uh, 
That I'd never heard before. According to the writers, the original choice to play Ross Webster was Alan Alda. They wanted an actor who could be ruthless without losing any charm. Executive producer Ilya Salkine said in the DVD commentary that his choice was Frank Langella. And Frank Langella, of course, we know, not only was Skeletor in the Masters of the Universe movie, but later starred as Perry White in Superman Returns. The little boy who appears waiting in the photo booth while Clark Kent changes into Superman was actually the same little boy who played Baby Kal-El in Superman. You are correct. In fact, while I can't, I don't know where what he was where he was in Superman four, I believe I read that that little boy has been in just about all the Superman movies except maybe for Returns. Uh, he was in fact in Man of Steel. He was one of the soldiers uh, standing out in the. Uh, area when Superman's waiting for Zod and company to arrive on their little ship. But yeah, he was in, he's in Man of Steel. The scenes in which Superman straightens the Leaning Tower of Pisa and then leans it back at the end were originally planned for Superman 2. Hmm. According to Ilya Salkind, an earlier version of the script included the comic book villain's Brainiac and Mr. Mixius Pitalik teaming up, and Superman meeting his cousin Supergirl, which would lead to the potential Supergirl spinoff. I believe that's part of what you thought was cool. But anyway, that's fine. Thank you. Uh, according to the producer's commentary on the Superman 3 Deluxe Edition DVD, which is what I watched, by the way, I just didn't have their commentary, this film was actually not a flop. While critics and fans generally expressed disappointment with the film, and its $60 million gross Fell, and its $60 million gross fell short of the previous two movies' $100 million plus gross, Superman 3 still made an impressive profit despite stiff competition from Star Wars Return of the Jedi, which opened three weeks earlier, and Octopussy, which opened ten days which opened, uh, and Octopussy, which opened ten days earlier. Yes, uh, as I failed to mention in the episode, but I mentioned in the show notes, Superman 3 was the number 12 movie for the year of 1983, which really isn't bad, really. Um, it's hard to say. To be honest, I, I'm, I'm not... The film was still fun, but I don't know how much of that money is because of... fans liking the movie or how much and how much of it was just because Superman 1 and 2 were amazing let's go see the third one uh the same thing happened with um was it Transformers 2 Rise of the Fallen or something like that um that movie was breaking records and doing all kinds of stuff and that movie was crap really and it had all kinds of problems due to, to the uh, big writing strike and everything, and critics and fans were generally disappointed about that movie, and it set all kinds of records. So, yeah, it's cool, but you can't always go by that. Jennifer Jason Lee was originally set to star as Lana Lang, but turned down the role because she was too young. Frank Oz played a brain surgeon in a deleted scene from the montage of the supercomputer causing a nationwide power outage. It's included in the extended TV version of the film. He also worked on puppet sequences, which were also deleted and not included in any version. Why would they have puppets? 
The film's director of photography, Robert Painter, previously shot An American Werewolf in London, in which Oz appeared, and would go on to shoot The Muppets Take Manhattan, which is Oz's directorial debut, and Little Shop of Horrors. The musical tones from the video game Ross Webster is playing are from the Atari 2600 version of Pac-Man. And the film was released in 1983, the year of Superman's 45th anniversary, and the Peace of Vendor was played by the Peace of Vendor. Interesting. Well, thank you very much, Ro- uh, Russell, and thank you for everybody else. I apologize for not having many emails the last couple, or at least la- this last month, uh, but you know the episodes are already going to be pretty long before I even got to reading emails, so I wanted to make sure that we got as kept them as short and concise as possible so I held off for a little bit but thank you all for writing in please keep the emails coming Uh, let's see and when we return after a couple of promos we are going to get into July 4th 1976 Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages greetings podcast listener do you like ready to form Voltron? Or maybe Thunder, 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 Or have you seen the latest episode of... Hello. I'm the Doctor. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then check out Charlie's Geekcast, hosted by me, Charlie Niemeyer. Charlie's Geekcast is a bi-weekly podcast covering comics and other geek stuff. The first episode of each month is devoted to comics, where, currently, I'm covering Grant Morrison's run on JLA, one storyline at a time. The other episode of the month is devoted to whatever else I want to talk about, such as movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, and more. Feel free to check it out at www.charliesgeekcast.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, hopefully. Well, hello there. I'm J. David Weeder. You may know me from the internet. Come in. Enjoy my palatial Arctic estate. Ah, I see you notice the smell of mahogany and my hardback archive and showcase editions. Yeah, I do all right for myself. Listen, why don't you get cozy here with me on my titano skin rug while Metallo mixes us up a drinky drink? Metallo, soda cola martini, shaken. Look, I want you to come with me to a place. A place where it's only you and me and the Man of Steel, maybe Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane? Wait, wait, where are you going? No, this isn't me coming on to you. This is a podcast promo. What I'm trying to propose is joining me weekly like Clark Kent did when he threw the green crystal into the water and saw Marlon Brando's giant head appear. Only in podcast form, and my head just won't even be visible because it is an audio medium. Once a week, delve into the world of Superman with me on Superman Forever Radio. Look at comics, toy lines, TV series, characters, creators, anything and everything connected to the Man of Steel. 
every Sunday at supermanforever.com, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Superman Forever Radio, fighting for truth and justice forever. That's supermanforever.com. See, I didn't mean what you thought I meant. It's all good. And yes, this is a new glowing white Kryptonian robe. Thank you so much for noticing. And yes, that is Lori Lamaris lounging by the pool. Don't tell her, but we're having smoked salmon for dinner and she takes it very personally. And you know who can't take a joke? Terra Man. You get one Glue Factory reference and he's up in arms. Superman Forever Radio. Keeping J. David Weeder off the streets so you don't have to. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Okay, picture it. Summer, 1976. In the United States, there was all kinds of excitement due to the country celebrating the 200th anniversary of its independence. Well, there was excitement in the real world, not so much in the world of comics, anyway. Uh, In fact, with just a quick look at the comics published around this time on Mike's Amazing World of Comics at www.dcindexes.com, it appears that there were only a handful of comics celebrating the Bicentennial that year. Over at Marvel, there was a special bicentennial issue of Spidey Super Stories that came out in April. And while it had a July 1976 cover date, there were a few more issues that came out after this, but before the 4th of July, so that was kind of interesting. Um, through coincidence, the 200th issue of Captain America came out in May of that year, so of course, they get on the, in on the bicentennial celebration too. And in June, Marvel published Captain America's Bicentennial Battles, which was a Treasury Edition special written and drawn by the king himself, Jack Kirby. I haven't read that yet, but I plan to soon, you know, since it's almost the fourth as I record this. Um, Over at DC, there was even less partying going on. Our Army at War number 295, which came out in May, had a special Sergeant Rock Bicentennial cover, but I don't know if the stories inside had anything to do with the big, with, you know, they wouldn't really have anything to do with the big celebration since the stories inside would take place like around World War II. But I don't know if they had anything to do with the celebration or not. Possibly just the f- playing on the fact that it's a military book that kind of gives rise to the patriotism anyway. Uh, that same day also saw the release of the Treasury special Superman Salutes the Bicentennial, which Russell Bragg has. And while Superman is on the cover in a reprint of a old Golden Age Superman cover, I want to say it was from issue 14, but I might be wrong, uh, with Superman standing uh, standing on the cover with an eagle on his arm that's been redrawn a few times. In fact, it was basically the inspiration for the Superman statue in Centennial Park in Metropolis after Superman died. Um, he's nowhere to be found in the actual issue itself. Uh, maybe he introduces the stories, but all of the stories feature uh, Tomahawk, which I guess makes sense considering the setting for the stories, because they would have been taking place around, I guess, the Revolutionary War, but it's a bit misleading if you ask me. I mean, you'd expect at least one Superman story in there somewhere. But, uh, and But finally, there was a four-part story that ran in Action Comics, which is where we come in. Now, three of the four issues I'm covering today have Superman-related backup stories, but since we're specifically focusing on the main four-part story, we're just going to leave them alone for now, and hopefully I'll remember to get back to them at a later date. But anyway, our first issue this episode is Action Comics number 460, 
It had a cover date of June 1976, with an on-sale date of March 30th, 1976, and a cover price of a whopping 30 cents. The title of the story is Superman, You'll Be the Death of Me Yet. Written by Carrie Bates, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Tex Blaisdell, and edited by Julie Schwartz. Our story begins innocently enough. One morning, as the Metropolis bus B109 takes its morning pi- or makes its morning pickup at 344 Clinton Street, among the passengers boarding at the stop is, of course, Clark Kent on his way to work at WGBS. Surprisingly, he's joined a few stops later by Steve the Jerk Lombard, WGBS sportscaster and all-around jerk, like I just said. His car's in the shop, so he's stuck slumming it on mass transit for a few days. Or at least for the day. Before the bus can arrive at its next stop, there's a huge commotion on board as something is happening behind our favorite reporter and Steve. Appearing out of nowhere is an alien who is putting off so much heat uncontrollably that he's melting the back end of the bus but isn't singeing people. Thinking quickly... Clark opens the emergency exit right after the bus has stopped, and all the passengers make a quick exit. In the confusion, Clark is able to duck into some bushes and change to Superman. While he's gone, the alien appears to cool down, but once Superman shows up, it starts burning up uncontrollably again. Strangely enough, even Superman is feeling the heat and actually begins to sweat, which really rarely happens to him. While he's busy being shocked by this turn of events, the alien sends the Man of Steel flying with a mighty thwock. Quickly regrouping, Superman dives underground, then pulls the alien down with him before hitting him with a powerful blow strong enough to send the alien bursting out of the ground and high into the sky. Superman speeds up to catch him, but soon finds himself suffering a fever that leaves him too weak to carry the alien, and both fall to the ground. While Superman's crash to the ground knocks him out, the alien lands on the back of a dump truck and soon resumes the disguise of a normal Earthman. As he heads to his job on a construction site under the guise of Andrew Mita, he, uh, we get to find out just what the heck is going on. About a year ago, on a planet in the Andromeda Galaxy, in which everyone has superpowers, the alien, whose name is Carbrack, who, which by the way, I just realized while I was typing this, is one of those words that is spelled the same way backwards as it is forwards. Interesting. Anyway, he learned that he had a fatal allergy to every superpowered being on his planet, which was giving him a recurring fever and uncontrollable seizures. Since seclusion was basically out of the question due to so many people, he was sent to Earth, since its atmosphere, gravity, and distance from the sun are ideal for a total recovery. For a total recovery, unfortunately, Superman and his powers are similar enough to set off the fever and seizures, and since his health has not that, and since his health has now started to deteriorate again, he's forced to take life-saving measures. The next day, while Clark and Steve are working out at the WGBS gym as part of Morgan Edge's new health program, Clark spots a job for Superman. So as he quickly leaves, we change our focus to the window washer outside, who just happens to be Andrew Maida. Uh, Using his powerful memory and the PSI machine he brought from his homeworld, Andrew has deduced that Superman must have been on the bus and in disguise in order for him to have set off one of his episodes. As such, he's narrowed down the suspects to just two people. 
And while Clark flies off as Superman in invisible super speed, Andrew uncontrollably reverts to his alien form and crashes in to kill his prime super suspect, Steve Lombard. All right, uh, going real quickly through my notes. Page three. Um, I mentioned this in my synopsis. How is Carbrack? I'm sorry, Crabrack. Crab? Brack. Crab. Sounds like Crabrack. Weird. Anyway, how is he melting the back end of the bus, but people's clothing and hair and stuff isn't burning? I mean, Clark, it makes sense. But Lombard and everybody else should be, like, dealing with flames. But they're not. Uh, page 5. This is actually a pretty dynamic-looking fight, considering it's drawn by Kurt Swan, so I have to applaud him for that. So, Very good, Mr. Swan. Page 8. I'm going to voice what I think we're all thinking at this point. Well, at least what I'm thinking. If Carbrack was has been on Earth for a year now, how is it possible that he's just now realizing that Superman's a threat to him? I'm thinking that as soon as he saw a news story about Superman, either on TV or in the paper, he probably should have gone to the other side of the world where Superman's a little less likely to go. Or, I don't know, maybe contact Superman and make him aware of the situation and get some help. But no, somehow he's avoided... He's not even thought about Superman being a problem for a year. That just makes it doesn't make sense. Um, page 10, we find out his name is Andrew Mita. Get it? Andromeda... Andromeda, see what they did there? Very clever, Mr. Bates. And page 11. I'm kind of surprised that Superman didn't notice the glowing alien or the loud ARG as he flew off. I mean, maybe he was just so focused on this job for Superman, but, of course, that we don't know about yet. But, you know, I would think something like that would be noticed by Superman, especially since he can feel like the heat and stuff that comes off this alien. But, you know, whatever. If he noticed, it would totally change the story. So, well, you know, it's one of those things. Plot, con- plot convenience. Any event, that's in. thus ends part one. And after a quick promo, we'll move on to part two. 1937. To keep the increasingly threatening Third Reich from achieving a supernatural doomsday weapon, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt secretly turns to soldier of fortune, adventurer, and World War I hero, Ace Kilroy. Ace Kilroy is a serialized webcomic that launched on Halloween night 2011. The co-creation of writer Rob Kelly and artist Dan O'Connor. It was nominated for a 2012 Eagle Award for Favorite Webcomic. And Kelly won a 2012 Philadelphia Geek Award for Comic Book Writer of the Year. Ace Kilroy features... Adventure, horror, mystery, political intrigue, and romance. Join the fight against evil. Visit acekilroy.com. All right, Action Comics number 461 had a cover date of July 1976, with an on-sale date of April 29th, 1976, and like the previous issue, had a cover price of just 30 cents. The title of this story is Kill Me or Leave Me by the exact same creative team as before. Picking up on, from, and I... And, and that's actually true. I'm not just saying that so I don't have to look it up. That is true. I actually have it typed here in my notes, but, you know, it gets redundant if I keep reading that. So I'm just going to move on. Picking up from last issue's shocking cliffhanger, Steve proves that he still has some moves while dodging Carbrack's attacks. 
Meanwhile, 3,000 miles away, Superman saves a senator from some would-be assassins. About a minute after he left, Superman returns to WGBS to see the commotion going on inside the gym. After a brief tussle, during which Lombard retrieves a video camera so that he can capture all the action, Carbrack tells Superman that both of them cannot survive on Earth, then creates some kind of energy blast, I think, that creates an explosion, and while Superman flies Lombard outside to safety, we see Andrew Mita calmly walking away inside the building, which, in an example of comic physics, does not seem to have suffered much damage other than a hole in the wall and some broken do- broken doors. Handy. Uh, returning to his apartment, Mita, who now realizes that Clark Kent must be Superman, uses his PSI machine to implant ideas into the minds of, his, of, Clark, of Clark's co-workers as well as everyone else in Metropolis. The next morning, when Clark heads out to work, he's met by a mob of well, practically screaming fans who basically want a piece of him. Something for him to buy or sell or do. And he just needed to get away. Eventually, he makes his way to WGBS, hoping that the day will return to normal. But instead, Lois has seemingly fallen for him, saying that his charms make it difficult for her to resist. And Steve even compliments him on his charisma, which is a sure sign something's wrong. And as he tries to leave them, Morgan Edge presents Clark with a lifetime contract guaranteeing him a million dollars a year. Now, while I would have signed that contract in a heartbeat, Clark instead runs off to find a place to change to Superman and get away for a while. Maybe he needs a Snickers. Anyway, unfortunately, everywhere he turns, he's met by more of his admiring fans. Eventually, Clark ends up making his way to the nearby park, where he is confronted by Carbrack, who not only reveals that he knows Clark's secret, but then punches him so that he goes flying into the crowd, injuring several of them. While a blast of super breath has no effect on Clark, it knocks more of the crowd around, and Clark starts to feel guilt over leading these people into danger. And, but at that point, he's also starting to feel the effects of the fever attack, both of which allows Carbrack to get the upper hand and knock Clark into the ground. But the PSI machines, uh, the PSI machine appears to have worked too well, as the whole crowd begins cheering Clark on, seemingly giving him a second wind. Quickly, Clark bursts out of the ground with a water main, blasting Carbrack with water. Then uses super breath to freeze the water into an ice cocoon. Then flies up and shatters the ice with a super punch to cheers of Super Clark, Super Clark. Carbrack retreats to his apartment to use the PSI machine again, but before he can issue a command, he's knocked out by Superman, who then uh, uses the machine himself to erase the impression of Clark that Carbrack had planted in everyone's minds, then make them all forget about the super fight they just witnessed, therefore protecting his secret identity, and defeated, Carbrack gives Superman a final ultimatum. Leave it, leave Earth, leave Earth so that Carbrack can live or stay on Earth and kill him. Alright, my notes for this issue start on page 4. And I have no idea exact what exactly Carbrack is doing to cause that explosion. The art isn't very clear and it really isn't mentioned. Usually something like that would be mentioned in a caption. They mention everything. We have a scene of Clark walking across the street to WGBS. As Clark walks across the street to, w- to his job at WGBS, where he works as a newspaper, as a television reporter. You know, something like that. But 
Nothing. All we see is a glowing hand. It looks like it's going to touch Superman on the shoulder, and then boom. So I, I'm not sure. Uh, page 5. I'm wondering how Andrew is able to walk out of the destroyed gym without anyone noticing. I mean, he just calmly walks out like nothing happened. It, it's weird. And there's people standing around, so I don't know. Uh, page 6. Jimmy is specifically mentioned as one of the co-workers at the PSI machine it's going to affect first. But Jimmy's not seen anywhere throughout the entire four-part story. So that's kind of weird. On page 10, I love how Carbrack's plan backfires on him. I mean, it's a pretty cool for, way for it to work out on Clark's side. At first, it's a detriment, but then it ends up being a... It's up uh, inspiring a second wind in Clark, so it's pretty cool. And page 11. I didn't notice this on the previous read-throughs, but Superman makes sure to keep Carbrack's hands in contact with the PSI machine when he's using it. At first glance, it looks like he's just holding it himself, but if you look closely, you can clearly see that he's holding Carbrack's hands to it to make it work. So, yeah, that's kind of cool. Nice little detail that you wouldn't think of. Um, but now while I quench my thirst real quick, uh, please enjoy this little promo. Hey everyone, Sean Engel here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. Hey, it's good to hear from you. It's been a long time. How have you been? What have you been up to? Oh, not much. Working with other podcasters, palling around with Simon Cowell, prepping for the Mayan Apocalypse. You know, the usual. Neat. Anyhow, uh, glad we got back together since the show, Just One of the Guys, is coming to a turning point and... Since you were there at the beginning, I thought it'd be appropriate that you be here now. Ooh, are you finally changing formats and doing your epic coverage of the Al Milgram Opus in US 1? Um, no. I'm going to start coverage of the Kyle Rayner stories in Green Lantern. And that supposedly is more impressive than the trucker who can receive CD signals through a metal plate in his head? Undoubtedly. Plus, I'm still going to be covering the ongoing saga of Guy Gardner. Will he be getting a metal plate in his head which allows him to receive CP signals? No, nothing quite that ridiculous. Although the stories will involve him getting alien DNA, becoming a living weapon, and punching Nazi dinosaurs. Seriously? Yep. So all of this, yet the epic tale of a trucker who's vying to avenge his death of his brother caused by a man who sold his soul to the devil for a satanic 18 healer is just too goofy? Precisely. <sighs> Whatever. So where can I find out about all these changes? Lots of places. For one, you can go to www.justoneoftheguys.lipson.com to download the shows, check out the covers of the books, and leave comments on individual show postings. You can also find the show on iTunes just by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, and you can leave a review there as well. So after you finish these books up, you'll cover US-1? Maybe. I've still got that Dallas Dynasty show with J. David Weeder to do. And Scott Gardner has approached me about doing an NFL Super Bowl podcast that he wanted to do in conjunction with the 25th anniversary of its release. It's come check it out every Friday at justoneoftheguys.libson.com. Okay. Action Comics number 462 had a cover date of August 1976 and an on-sale date of May 24th, 1976, and a cover price of, of three dimes once again. The title of this story is The Super War of Independence by the same creative team as the last two issues. They actually covered the whole story, but I'm just going to mention it each time. Okay. 
With, with his condition now entering its final stages, Carbrack now explains the entire situation to Superman as his fever and seizures cease, signaling the final stage of his affliction. So Carbrack takes off again with Superman in a hot pursuit through the city, only for Carbrack's powers to cause all of the buildings in Metropolis to suddenly become all wibbly-wobbly like Jello, Or taffy, as Superman calls it. While Superman stops to gawk at the sight before him, Carbrack turns around and belts Superman, causing him to become distorted as well. This distortion also messes with his vision, so he removes his belt to act, to act as a blindfold and uses his other super senses to finally lay a haymaker on Carbrack, sending him flying, possibly off-planet. With the alien no longer in the vicinity, Superman and the city return to normal. However, Superman has now lost track of Carbrack, meaning that all he can do now is wait and prepare, try to be prepared. After a quick pointless scene in which Edge and Clark are out for a jog while talking about the upcoming bicentennial salute that Clark is taping that evening for WGBS, we then move ahead to July 4th, when that taped special is airing. The special has given Carbrack a life-saving inspiration just as he begins to fade and turn into crimson splotches, signaling that death is only minutes away. After using the PSI machine again to program Superman for their final battle, he flies out and intercepts Superman on one of his daily patrols. He then flies off with Superman following behind. Once they reach the highest limits of super speed, the splotches formerly known as Carbrack begin spinning in a counterclockwise rotation. So Superman begins spinning at the same frequency, but moving at a, speed, at a faster speed in order to catch up. But without thinking, it also takes him into the time stream. With Superman gone from Earth, Carbrack immediately returns to normal, and via Thought Balloon, he explains that he had the PSI machine erase Superman's memory, programming a new life and era-appropriate clothes into Superman's mind to prevent him from wanting to come back. And, on July 4th, 1776, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, newspaper reporter Clark Kent is running over to Independence Hall to cover the signing of the Declaration of Independence. I have to admit, that was a pretty cool cliffhanger. Pay, uh, as for my notes, they start on page 4, where we see the buildings go all wobbly, and then Superman look distorted. And this really made me think of the post-crisis debut of Mr. Mixius Pitalik. Only thing missing was the lack of a... Uh... Oh, I can't think of his name. Yeah. Uh, it made me think of the post-crisis debut of Mr. Mixius Pitalik. Um, the only difference is that on that one... The, the Daily Planet thought it was a kid, which was actually kind of funny, but if it wasn't killing people. Um, and for once, we actually get to see how the people in the buildings are actually reacting to this. We see Clark, or we see Lois, and I believe Perry, possibly Jimmy, but I can't tell, um, literally have, trying to hold on to stuff and being kind of thrown around as the building's wobbling around, so that was pretty cool. Uh, page 7... This scene of Clark and Edge in the park, like I said before, is pretty pointless other than to make sure we get a Clark Kent scene. Um, yeah. I mean, it just shows that how he works really hard to be as inept as possible at exercise. So, uh, Page 8. Carbrek turns into a bunch of crimson splotches during the fi his final moments of life. Keep that in mind. And page 10, I hope it was part of the PSI programming that kept Superman from realizing that spinning at such a speed would send him back in time until it was too late. Because 
he's got too much experience for me to believe he just forgot. This is the Bronze Age Superman. They try to keep him at 29 years old all the time. Therefore, since he started his Superboy career at age 8, he's been doing this for 21 years now. He knows how to go through time. He knows how that works. He wouldn't just forget. But that's that finishes up part 3. That was more of an action issue, which makes sense. Uh, and after one more quick promo, we'll get this story finished up. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man. Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com. Okay. And finally, we have Action Comics 463 with a cover date of September 1976 and an on sale date of June 28, 1976, making this the final issue of Action Comics before the July 4th holiday with a cover price of 30 cents. Title of this one is Die Now, Live Later. And the creative team is exactly the same once again. In the offices of the Pennsylvania Gazette, Clark meets up with his editor, Benjamin Franklin, where he is given the assignment to cover the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, On his way to Independence Hall, Clark runs into John Hancock, but their visit is cut short by two frightened horses pulling a wagon. Without thinking, Clark takes off, quickly catching up to the horses and tackling them. While Hancock believes the horses slipped in some puddles, Clark is left with questions because it really seemed to him that he really did knock them over. Anyway, continuing his walk to Independence Hall, Clark comes across three suspicious-looking men in an alleyway. Thinking that he's snooping, they intend to rough him up, but all they end up doing is hurting themselves and running off scared. But Clark is a little too preoccupied to care because he catches his reflection in the mirror in which he's wearing this strange-looking costume with a cape, even though he can look down and clearly see that he's wearing a suit and customary colonial hat. Next up, after running with a pretty woman that he thinks is photogenic, which makes no sense because there's no such thing as photos in in 1776, Clark gets another shock when he's able to see into the hall and is looking at the declaration just sitting on a table. No guards. Nothing, just a piece of paper sitting on the table. He also spots the three men from earlier tunneling up from below, and is shocked again when he can hear them talking and learning that they are Tory spies under orders from King George himself to steal the declaration. This makes Clark realize this is a job for su-su-su-something. What's he going to do, try and stop them on his own? How could he possibly stop three armed men on his own? But then he looks down and sees that strange reflection again in a puddle which surprises him enough to say, Great Krypton. And suddenly, Clark remembers who he is, and what's going on. Since this has broken the programming of the PSI machine, Clark's clothes fade away and Superman takes to the skies. At super speed, he enters the hall, but the spies have already stolen the document. So he continues on, entering the tunnel that they had made and catching up to them. After their bullets have no effect, Superman uses a gust of super breath to blow them back out of the tunnel and into the air, then uses a super speed uh, uh, 
backdraft to basically tow them out to a battlefield and deposit them at the feet of General George Washington, all while not being seen as anything but a red and blue blur. Where have I heard that before? Anyway, then at invisible super speed, he heads back to Independence Hall and drops the document back on the table just as the Founding Fathers enter the room. Soon, the vote is taken and the Declaration is adopted and signed. Next, Superman hurdles back through the time stream to 1976 and heads straight for his fortress in the Arctic. Later that day, while flying over the city, Carbrack overhears someone mention that they saw Superman just this morning. And while he doesn't believe it, the sudden fever he suddenly starts feeling tells him that it's true. The two super-aliens begin another super-powered tussle, but before he can kill Superman, Carbrack dies. At super speed, Superman flies Carbrack's body to the fortress, where he uses his super-scientific equipment to not only cure Carbrack of his condition, but then to also revive him. The next morning, Clark gets on bus B-109, as he usually does, and sits right next to construction worker Andrew Mita, who doesn't even look at the reporter twice. We then learn that after being cured and revived, Carbrack was able to return to his human form once again. Then, Superman used the PSI machine to erase all of Carbrack's memories of being an alien and fighting Superman, and programmed a new pass for him as construction worker Andrew Mita which means that Carbrack is gone forever. Hopefully. Alright, and our notes for this final chapter. Page 3. This, uh, this kind of sets up a little bit of a Forrest Gump syndrome for the story, uh, in which Carrie Bates makes sure that Clark meets a couple of important historical figures. Um, first, he meets Benjamin Franklin then John Hancock in the span of the first two pages of the story, and of course later he drops the spies off at the feet, literally at the feet of George Washington. Um, so that's interesting. Also, in this issue, Clark's hairdo? Not a mullet. Page 6. The fight in the alley is actually pretty uh, humorous. Clark is as surprised as they are about the whole thing. They're reacting to the pain that they're feeling, and Clark's just standing there like, what is going on? And then when he sees the, his Superman reflection in the mirror, he thinks it's bewitched, which actually makes sense for, for 1776. Uh, page 10. Clark starts going through his this-looks-like-a-job-for-Superman routine, but realizing it makes no sense halfway through, it was pretty funny, too. Uh, but as soon as he returns to normal, I love that he knows exactly what he needs to do and does it. Page 12. On the previous page, it looked like Clark was right outside Independence Hall when he was looking down at that puddle and taking off. But then the top of the next, of page 12, when he's flying over to Independence Hall, it looks like he's several blocks, maybe even miles away. It's just kind of weird. Uh, page 14. I wonder why Carbrack is flying around instead of resuming his human persona and just going about his normal business. You'd think that'd be easier in Superman doesn't know his secret identity as far as I can tell so far so I don't know why he didn't do that then again I mean we were running out of story room and you know we had to finish the story also when Superman went back in time Carbrack sounded like he was pretty much back to normal and completely cured but he sure died real quick considering it took three issues of fighting to almost die the first time and page 16, S strange, Carbrack's dead, but 
There's no crimson splotches this time. It's just normal carbrack. Hmm. What if that's considered a plot hole? Maybe. Anyway, on page 17, this doesn't seem to be a very Superman way of saving Carbrack, but considering the situation and Carbrack's lack of reasoning, I guess this works. Uh, I, I actually would be interested to read the letters pages about four issues after this to see what the current fans thought about Superman letting him die. That'd be interesting. Um, overall, though, I thought this story was pretty interesting. It's a lot more fun to read when you're not doing a podcast and not really thinking it, thinking about it too much. Um, I'm pretty sure that they could have had Superman go back to any point in time in this story, and it would have worked fine, but with the Bicentennial coming up that they went with July 4th, something tells me that they didn't come up with this whole story to have some way to celebrate the 4th. Okay, there's a few places where things don't seem to make sense very much. Um, but they kind of have to happen that way in order for things to work out, such as Carbrack flying around as if he's on a patrol instead of just resuming his human life. On the other hand, we have an entire four-issue story without a single Steve Lombard gag. Now, I'm not, her I'm not sure how Schwartz let that slip through, but I'm kind of glad he did. As for the art... I personally thought the layouts and pencils were fine, but as I've said before, I'm just not a fan of Tex Blystale's inks over Swan. He's pretty good on some people, but not Swan. Um, it, it's not bad enough that it takes me out of the story, it just doesn't work for me. Especially when you consider that the same month Superman was being the Superman issue was being inked by Bob Oxner, who, as I've mentioned, is one of my favorite Kurt Swan inkers. So switching between the two would have been like weird. But thus ends the Superman portion of the episode. Next up, Mr. J. David Weeder returns after a bit of a vacation to present yet another exciting adventure of Superboy and the Legion in the Bronze Age. The Adventures of Superboy. Exciting stories of Superman when he was a boy, who even as an infant demonstrated powers and abilities far beyond the capabilities of Earthlings. Superboy, who as Clark Kent, mild-mannered foster son of Martha and Jonathan Kent, preserves the secret of his true identity and devotes his superpowers to the prevention of crime, the preservation of peace, and the pursuit of truth. Welcome back to Superboy in the Bronze Age, where I, J. David Weeder, am returning after a two-month hiatus to read through some Bronze Age adventures of Superboy alongside the Legion of Superheroes. This time around, we pick up with Superboy starring the Legion of Superheroes number 206, the January-slash-February 1975 edition. This issue was released on October 24th, 1975, and features a cover showing the Teen of Steel at the mercy of a golden robot with dead Legionnaires, Invisible Kid, and Pharaoh Lad coming to the rescue. What is this? Dead Legion members? How can that be? We'll find out the answer in the story The Legionnaires Who Haunted Superboy, written by Kerry Bates with art by Mike Grell. And we open with a pair of smaller panels showing Superboy flying through the air, pursued by Pharaoh Lad, and then another panel with Clark Kent fitfully trying to sleep in his rockin' pajamas as the ghostly image of Invisible Kid stands over him. This is punctuated by the very large panel of Superboy extremely unnerved in his pajamas, exclaiming that he must be losing his mind because both of them are dead! 
yeah, it doesn't really bury the lead. Two dead Legionnaires are coming back if you hadn't picked up on that yet. But it's way more twisted than you might think. I mean, it's twice as twisted as the ugly pajamas Clark Kent is wearing here. And our story begins as Superboy arrives to demolish an old armory building to make room for a new Smallville playground. But as Superboy begins his inexpensive manual labor for the government, yeah, that's kind of what it is. He's cheap labor. I know they roped him into it with the promise of a new playground, and that's sweet. That really is. But if this armory was being torn down to make way for Papa Pete's porn hut, Superboy would be, well, simply day labor. Free day labor. I don't know if this is the best use of his powers, not when there are, you know, people to be saved, aliens to be greeted, that old chestnut. I do want to note that Grell's cape work is in a world of its own. It's just excellent. And when your main character's most noticeable feature is a cape, an artist that makes it look like it's its own character is an asset to your book. It drapes naturally over Superboy's shoulders when he is still and looks dynamic when he flies. And not to mention, the face work is also on a high level. Superboy looks somewhat distinctive from the adult Man of Steel while still being recognizable. But Superboy is about to tear down the building when a mysterious figure starts ramming through the place like a human pinball and destroys it for Superboy. Superboy is shocked to see that this figure is Pharaoh Lad, the first Legion heir to fall in the line of duty. In fact, Pharaoh Lad died fighting a Sun Eater in Adventure Comics 353, which I've mentioned before. What I didn't mention was that Jim Shooter, who created the character, killed him off because he originally wanted Pharaoh Lad to be African American, but Mort Weisinger shot down the idea for fear of losing readers in the South. So, annoyed that he couldn't do what he wanted with the character, Shooter chose him to be the one who sacrificed himself in the story. Now, even though Pharaoh Lad was only a legionnaire for a short time, this sacrifice made him legendary. He is so revered in fandom that he actually has a trade paperback of his Silver Age adventures entitled The Legion of Superheroes, The Life and Death of Pharaoh Lad, available at InStockTrades.com and for 45% off. It is highly, highly recommended. In the story, which we're still in progress with, Superboy is shocked to see his fallen comrade, but Pharaoh Lad doesn't hang around. Instead, he does the dark and mysterious thing and flies off, leaving Superboy sitting in a stupor. And then history repeats itself the next day, as Clark Kent is walking an extremely hot classmate named Susie to school. Wait, Susie? Not Lana? Oh, when Lana finds out she's going to be ticked. She has been throwing herself at Clark in this teen angst sexed up fever, and now Clark is checking out this hot blonde tramp. If I were Lana, I would tell Clark where to stick it. But, of course, I'm not Lana Lang, and the story progresses when a random skydiver plummets from the sky with a parachute that won't open. Somebody invisible saves the man, and with his x-ray vision, Clark is able to see that it is Invisible Kid who died at the hands of Validus a few issues back. Remember when we covered that? Invisible Kid flies off too, and we never get the explanation on why there was a random skydiver. Was there a plane on fire? Was he just wanting attention? Maybe he was one of those cry-for-help skydivers. We don't know. But I'm sure the bigger mystery is, why are two dead Legionnaires back? And how are they back? Superboy is wondering that as well, as he's dictating to his audio diary, kind of like a Superman podcaster. Well, that's pretty meta. But Pharaoh Lad and Invisible Kid show up and submit themselves to a scan of Superboy's X-ray vision, which proves that they are flesh and blood, but they don't say how they've come back. Only that the other members of the Legion don't know they're back, and they don't know if they are ready to return to duty yet. 
These heroes have just come back. They're kind of unsure of themselves. They're out of practice. So they took a time bubble back to the 20th century to get some practice in. Which comes pretty readily when Superboy's crisis alarm goes off, and all three fly into action and find this gold-colored robot from the cover. Which doesn't seem to have any real mission or anything, but... The robot quickly overtakes Superboy, but our returned heroes are able to defeat it thanks to Pharaoh Lad's powers of channeling metal and Invisible Kid's invisibility. They really just don't bury the lead there, do they? But with their victory, Superboy declares that they are ready to return to duty, so Pharaoh Lad and Invisible Kid hop into the time bubble and land right outside Legion headquarters. Then the time bubble explodes. No, really, I'm not making this up. I'm not making a joke. It blows up. And that is when Brainiac 5, Saturn Girl, and Monel reveal that these were clones of the original. But so far, the experimental cloning process only makes clones that last 48 hours. Wait, wait, what, what? Really? And if that wasn't a slap in the face, it turns out that the clones actually thought they were the originals and had no idea. They thought they had come back from the dead. And just to make sure we punt the reader's emotions out the window, they revealed that Superboy knew all along. And he constructed the robot that they fought to test how reliable the clones were. Are you... Are you kidding me? That is the most horrible thing I have read in a long time. We've given these clones their life. They think they're the originals. But it only lasts for two days. And then we know that. We know they're going to die inevitably. So we're going to test their loyalty while they're here. And I know this shouldn't come as a surprise for a team that has memory scanners. You know, those privacy invasive things. And, and you know, I can actually see it from Brainiac 5. I get that. But Superboy is okay with this? No, no, wait. Superboy is an accomplice to this and a willing accomplice at that. It's inhumane. These clones had thoughts. They had emotions of their own. They were real to an extent. And it was cruel to let them go on thinking this when they would inevitably explode. I mean, they blew up for Pete's sake. They didn't just wither and die, they blew up. And I'm sorry, despite some great Mike Grell artwork, and it is phenomenal, this story needs to be buried in my memory, forgotten, for the sheer horrific treatment of two Legionnaires who paid the ultimate price. I'm putting this book down, I'm walking away to do some stiff shots, and these shots are going to be in the memory of Invisible Kid and Pharaoh Lad. Here's to you two, and until next time, I am J. David Weeder, long live the Legion. As in, live longer than 48 hours when you inevitably blow up. All right, thanks, Dave. And that's going to wrap things up for this episode. As for next episode, if everything works out and he doesn't get called in on called into work, Michael Bradley will be returning to the show as we look at Superman versus Muhammad Ali. But if he gets called into work, I'll come up with something else. But never fear, true belief... Wait a minute, I can't call you that. Um, wrong company. Uh, never fear, dear listener. I will be here with a yet another Bronze Age Superman adventure regardless. Just as Dave will be, will have another thrill-packed Legion story for you. What, what more could anyone ask? You have been listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer and J. David Weeder. The home of the show is at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com, where you will find show postings, links to the RSS and iTunes feeds, and more. You can also find the show on Facebook, where you'll get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted, and on Stitcher Smart Radio. Superman of the Bronze Age is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. There you will not only find postings for this show, but also for many other Superman-related podcasts. 
Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Listen to our show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Blackberry, or Palm phones. On demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. Stop whistling, please. I'm trying to sleep over here. Sleeping too much is a sign of depression. Yeah, well, you keep whistling and I'll put a depression in your skull. We've got damn near eight hours before we get to the library. I'm just trying to stay alert. Well, I hate that song. So do I. I made up words to the damn thing. What? I made up words to hail to the chief. I sing them to myself every time they play it. I made up words to it, too. Yeah, let me hear yours. No, you go first. No, no, you do yours and I'll sing mine. Hail to the chief, he's the chief, and he needs hailing. He is the chief, so everybody hail like crazy. Hail to... That's more or less. Okay, well, let's hear your version, Gershwin. No. Well, what do you mean, no? I sang mine. I know, you're an idiot. Hail to the chief, if you don't, I'll have to kill you. I am the chief, so you better watch your step, you bastards.